when it comes to the teaching of race, we have a question at PRI that we asked uh, pretty routinely. So last fall, we found that two thirds of Americans believe public school teachers and librarians provide students with appropriate curricula and books that teach the good and bad of American history. Only about 29% believe that school teachers and librarians are indoctrinating students with inappropriate curriculum and books that wrongly portray America as a racist, for example. Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michalego. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Melissa Deckman is the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy. Her first book, School Board Battles The Christian Right in Local Politics, won the American Political Science Association's Hugh Morgan Award for the best book on religion and politics. Melissa is also author of Tea Party Women which examines the role of women in conservative politics and co-author of Women in Politics, a top-selling textbook on gender politics in the United States. Her commentary and research about politics has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, The Hill, Vice News, The Wall Street Journal, 538, and Politico, among other outlets. Prior to her appointment as PRRI's CEO, Deckman was the Lewis L. Goldstein Professor of Public Affairs and Chair of the Political Science Department at Washington College, where she taught courses on American politics, women in politics, religion in politics, research methods, and state and local politics. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to The Signal. Hi. Nice to meet you, Cyril. Glad to be here. Great. So, Your first book that you published back in 2004, School Board Wars, The Christian Right and Local Politics, examines the movement's attempts to influence school boards and public education in general in the 1990s. In fact, former leader of the Christian coalition, Ralph Reed, said back in 96, quote, I would rather have a thousand school board members than one president and no school board members. Why did he believe that? And why do Christians like Reed believe that the capture of school boards is so vital to their larger political project? So my book, School Board Battles, which came out in 2004 and really tried to chronicle uh, the extent to which the Christian right was influencing uh, school board elections across the country. Uh, As you noticed, or as you mentioned, rather, um, the Christian coalition was intent on trying to um, recruit conservative Christians to run for, for school boards. And I think what drew them to these school board battles or these school board races was really an attempt to um, intervene on what curriculum was being taught to schools. I think there's always a concern about, you know, how history is being portrayed, um, what values are being, um, I think, spread through public school curriculum. And so whenever there's, I think, a challenge to the religious or cultural views of 
of conservative Christians, there is a, a desire to try to influence what's happening at the school board level. So I think that's essentially what um, what Ralph Reed was was talking about when he talked about trying to have more people influenced at the grassroots than than nationally, in terms of conservative Christian activism. So, so can you talk a little bit more about like what their vision is for this transformation of public education's curriculum, what that might look like? Yeah, so I think in the 1990s, when the Christian Coalition was sort of in its heyday, it's sort of, I think, as an organization is not um, necessarily as robust as it once was. There's certainly other conservative Christian groups out there today uh, fighting for their views on what public education and public schools should be teaching. Um, but certainly then as in now, I think there are some similarities that we're seeing happening. One is a concern about um, sex education and a concern about um, you know, what we would now call LGBTQ activism. So back in the 1990s, um, I think the concern was the introduction of conversations about homosexuality as part of the school curriculum. Um, that, of course, now I think is marked into not just concerns about homosexuality, but certainly concerns about uh, gender identity and transgenderism. Um, as you can see by following lots of right wing media or going to the websites of conservative Christian groups, um, there is a concern that public schools are indoctrinating students or influencing students uh, to challenge their gender identity or to uh, become uh, transgender. Um, and so that one through line, I think, in activism among the Christian right and conservative Christians in education politics is really dealing with uh, issues of sex education. So that's one, one issue. But secondly, I think it also is about considering, um, you know, the history of the United States. Um, and so back in the 1990s, one thing that's slightly different than, say, today is that at that time in the 1990s, we still had a majority of Americans who were white and were Christian. Um, maybe not conservative Christian, but nominally certainly identified as being Christian. I think what's happened now uh, and what we're seeing in school battles across the country is that we have with Generation Z, who are Americans born after 1996, and so students in middle school right now and in high school are part of this generation. This is the most racially diverse and ethnically diverse generation. They're also less religiously affiliated. And so because of all these demographic changes, I think there is a heightened interest in essentially considering how race and how religion is being taught in public schools in response to these changing demographics. Um, and so, for example, we've heard a lot of talk about critical race theory, um, and there's a big concern on um, the, the political right, not just the Christian right, but the political right in general, over whether or not schools are um, somehow portraying America as a as a racist country. And so these debates about those sorts of issues, how we talk about race, having an honest conversation about race, um, suddenly has taken on, I think, heightened awareness. And I think part of it's linked to changing demographics, changing, uh, and also linked to the fact that we have a growing diverse country. And that's a challenge to the worldview, I think, of many conservative Christians who you know, grew up at a time, especially as they're older, where America was more white, was more Christian, um, and it's, it was different than what they're seeing now when they turn on their television and look at young people, for example. So, so this is just, you know, backlash politics to social progress and the pace of social change, as well as demographic changes we're seeing across the country? I think that's a good way to think about it. Absolutely. Right. Um, because not only is Gen Z, for example, thinking about young people, 
uh, the most racially and ethnically diverse generation, but it's also the generation that's most likely to identify as LGBTQ. I mean, we find in our data at PRI and other studies find that among Gen Z, one in four roughly identify as being part of the LGBTQ movement. Um, and that is obviously, if you think about conservative um, uh, religious tenets, especially conservative Christianity, um, homosexuality, transgenderism is not something that they endorse or think is, is biblical. Uh, and so looking at schools and trying to, in their eyes, sort of have parents who have those views stop the teaching of that because they view it as indoctrination. I think that's really an explanation as part of the backlash to the reality of what is a very diverse uh, upcoming generation. And it's viewed as very threatening, I think, to those folks. So as you've noted, you know, the hot school board wars of the 90s and what we're seeing today aren't like historical aberrations, right? They're part of the kind of like this longer war um, that the Christian right and, you know, the, the larger right in general has waged against public education. Can, can you just take us on a, a brief historical tour, <laughs> as brief as possible? About, you <laughs> yeah, know, how long do we have in this podcast? Years, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe just starting with, I, I guess, like maybe the 1920s would be a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, anytime you have, I think, um, the introduction of new ideas um, that challenge prevailing orthodoxy or challenge the cultural and religious norms of Americans, um, being introduced in the public schools. This is where you have a lot of these battles taking place. Of course, the 1920s, the best example would be um, the introduction of the teaching revolution in public schools. And I think historically, many Americans might be familiar with the Scopes trial. And this involved um, the state of Tennessee essentially trying to outlaw the introduction of, of evolutionary theory in public schools. And the ACLU took on that case. And so they arrested a teacher he was trying to introduce evolution in a science class. Uh, he was arrested. The ACLU took on that case. And very famously, I think Clarence Darrow uh, was at a trial um, uh, against Williams Jennings Bryan, who was, of course, a Democratic uh, presidential candidate for many years, but a devout Christian who opposed evolution. And so many Americans remember this as a situation where in the court of public opinion, um, evangelicals were made to look um, you know, foolish or that they ultimately lost in the court of public opinion. But essentially, I think what's lost in that debate is that, in fact, um, the the law that prevented the teaching of evolution in Tennessee and also similar laws that were happening around the country, well, that law in particular was upheld. And so, in fact, there was a stifling of the teaching of evolution for many decades as, as a result of that. Um, and part of it was is that many school districts just, just not want to address the controversy. And so they just tried not to talk about it at all. Um, but that's a good example where a teaching essentially um, went against the religious teachings. of So a public school teaching, rather, went against the religious teaching of of some faith groups there. And so there were all of these heated battles over evolution. I think I'd also jump ahead to the 1950s as a good example. So in the 1950s, of course, it's the height of uh, the Cold War. Um, we were embroiled in this entanglement against godless communism, right? And so it, at the grassroots level, at the school board level, a lot of parents organizations, often led by women, I would say, uh, were completely monitoring and trying to suss out whether uh, you know, communists were infiltrating the public schools, right? And looking at sort of individual teachers and school districts around the country. And so there was a concern 
that uh, essentially we have to be on guard and vigilant for this indoctrination of, of socialism and communism among public schools here. I don't think there's any evidence that was really happening, of course, but nonetheless, you had a lot of conservative grassroots activists uh, looking at those sorts of battles. And then I think I jump ahead really to the late 1960s when you had essentially a push for more comprehensive sex education in public schools. And this, of course, is, I think, um, was an acknowledgement of the reality that, you know, uh, there was a need for more comprehensive sex education to sort of prevent teen pregnancy and sexual sexually transmitted diseases. And so in California, and I think in more what we call progressive states, there was a move by organizations to introduce the teaching of sex education that wasn't just abstinence-based, but really talking about um, these sorts of issues. And that engendered lots of conservative backlash um, for parents who didn't feel like public schools at all should be talking about these sorts of issues. Um, and so I think those sorts of examples historically show us that whenever there's been a conflict with the religious values of some parents and the curriculum that's being introduced in schools, um, you have essentially the the potential really for these skirmishes happening at, at the grassroots level of, of education politics, definitely. Parental rights has always been a political cudgel used in, in this war on public education. Um, and we're seeing this front and center today. But so is motherhood. And I, I think that kind of often gets overlooked. Um, can you explain the motherhood frame that you've written about um, that conservatives have often employed in their political kind of campaigns and aspirations and how groups like the Tea Party and Moms for Liberty today is essentially the weaponization of it? Sure. So I've talked about and written about um, what I call the motherhood frame uh, being used in American politics. I will say this. I think that motherhood is a very powerful rhetorical device that's often used by both the left and the right. Um, we know historically that women tend to be less involved in politics. And, and if you look at the long view of history, right, women couldn't even get the right to vote or didn't have the right to vote nationally until 1920. Um, but even after women got the right to vote, we know that um, when it comes to political participation, it really wasn't until the early 21st century that women's levels of participation began to be equal to, to men's. But there was, I think, a, ling a lingering idea that politics has always been a man's game or politics is sort of rough and dirty and women typically are not going to be involved in politics. But the one area, um, I think, where there's always been a historical justification to have women involved in politics um, is concerning education, because that concerns uh, children. And so invoking moms to participate in politics who otherwise would maybe not want to participate in politics by invoking uh, the need for mothers to protect their kids, I think is something that many conservative Christian groups have done uh, historically. Um, I, you also saw this, I think, with the rise of the Tea Party. Um, I wrote a book about uh, Tea Party women in part because I found the rhetoric employed by Sarah Palin to be really sort of uh, an embodiment of this idea, right? When she talked about Mama Grizzlies, um, trying to get more conservative women to become involved in politics and really invoking motherhood as a rationale here. Because if you're trying to protect your kids, um, whether that means, um, you know, monitoring the curriculum they're being exposed to in school or with the Tea Party, part of that motherhood rhetoric was invoked to say, we need uh, government not to infringe on the rights of families to 
um, make medical decisions or um, having a big, large national debt is bad for families. And so mothers need to fight against that, that the encroachment of the federal government, that kind of thing. So that's been around for, for quite a while. But I think the motherhood frame right now is used by Moms for Liberty because, again, there's a fear that indoctrination is happening in these public schools. And it's really up to mothers who are supposed to be um, protecting their kids um, to really change the tide here. And that's why that, I think, is often invoked. It's not to say that fathers don't do this as well and other parents, right? But there is something, I think, um, about motherhood rhetoric that has been used uh, historically in, in American politics, especially on the political right, to try to, I think, bring especially conservative women who may not historically have been as active in politics into the political fray. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, in the United States that the public the public conflates like socioeconomic status and this kind of like archetype of the suburban mom with, you know, political moderation and civility. And if you look throughout, you know, the U.S. history, you know, far-right women have often been on the wrong side of history and have been the exact opposite of like politically moderates. Where am I wrong with that? (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think far right and moderation just are two concepts that are definitely um, not compatible necessarily. Um, You know, I think it's that if you think about this from a conservative religious worldview, um, part of what defines that conservative religious worldview is the patriarchy and the idea of a family structure where there's a dad in charge, there's a mom who's the kind of the complementarian aspect is that, you know, she's not the leader, she's the helper, but that's a role that God has has ordained. And so any challenges to that kind of worldview where the the primary structure is one of a nuclear family with, with children, I, I mean, I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons that transgenderism and uh you know, homosexuality, those sorts of issues, LGBTQ issues have really galvanized many people on the political right because it's a direct challenge to their worldview of what is good and proper and ordered in a society. And so I think, I'm not sure I'm answering your question about moderation here, but but I think in the larger context for many conservatives, you know, what we're, what they're seeing being introduced in some school districts is a direct challenge to that sort of orthodoxy of what a patriarchal worldview should look like. That is coupled with, I think, a direct attempt by many on the political right to double down on masculinity as an important concept as well. Um, I would, uh, for example, encourage your listeners to read Kristen Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is an examination of the importance of masculinity politics when it comes to the Republican Party. But they're all of a piece because it really harkens to this idea that men are under siege, um, that people just, you know, are not... uh, adopting to what the God-ordained order should be of having families and, and you know, essentially uh, that involve one mom and, and one, you know, one dad. Um, and so looking at public schools as a way to reinforce that idea is why you have, I think, a lot of these conservative women being willing to confront school districts today and to be involved in curriculum battles and to ban books that present alternative ideas of what, um, from, from, their, from their worldview, um, that their kids are being exposed to, even though the vast majority of Americans, I would say, uh, oppose book bans and um, do not necessarily have that worldview either. How successful do you think this current war on public education 
is going to be, let's say, with in the next couple of years? And 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 do you see it playing out differently between red states and blue states? And finally, if in fact you know it does kind of it is more like successful in red states than it is in blue states. Won't that just divide the country even more? Because people will be kind of being, people will be educated and learn about completely different visions and versions of not only America, but the world. I think you're right in the sense that there are different political um, realities happening in red and blue states on these issues. Um, in my previous book, School Board Battles, that looked at this issue in the 1990s, um, what I tended to find was that, one, I think the extent to which the Christian right was uh, taking over public schools was a bit overblown. Like I didn't find in my, my research, um, I did a study of school board candidates drawn from random samples of school districts across the country. And I didn't find that conservative Christians were running more than other Americans, nor were they more likely to win or lose than other candidates, right? Um, but I also did a couple of case studies in school districts where conservative Christians had been elected. And what I found was essentially two things tended to happen. One was that um, once those members were on the board, um, especially had they had their only exposure to public schools been reading sort of right wing um, media summaries or information given to them by conservative Christian groups, they tended to moderate, at least some did, because they found that by and large in the public schools, it was just a lot of hardworking teachers trying to do best by, by, by kids, right? Um, or I found that you'd had conservative right Christians elected who realized they couldn't make the changes they wanted to because they were blatantly unconstitutional, right? I'm gonna go back, so the idea was that I'd be, be elected and in, in essentially force um, school prayer back in schools. Well, you can't do that, right? It's unconstitutional. Or there was a backlash from other parents in the community because a lot of times, you know, their their views, their attitudes, their policies were largely unpopular. And But what I found by the end of the 1990s is that there was a siphoning off happening, right? And there was a big, I think, increase in the number of homeschooling families. So if you were very, very conservative and religious, you tended to say, look, I can't make the changes I want in public schools. And so people tended to siphon off. Um, but the reality is, is that 20 years later, most families can't afford homeschooling or this is not really in their purview. Uh, and I think what has happened now is that you you have a lot of parents emerging out of the COVID era, being very unhappy with public schools. And so it's been ripe for more mobilization. And parental rights, I think, is one of those terms that is purposely vague because it kind of captures lots of kind of ideas of, of, of course, most Americans would say parents should have some say in what's happening in schools. Um, but parental rights can mean lots of things to lots of different people. But I think right now, because we have a social media environment that allows people to organize effectively, but also allows Americans to kind of only take a look at news or information that reinforces their biases, right? Or there's one example of a school district that does something nuts. And so that becomes extrapolated as to the whole country, when in reality, that's not necessarily the case. I, I think that those kind of dueling realities and polarization polar, leads to and enhances polarization. So I think you're right, Cyril, in the sense that in the short term, we're going to see policies that are happening in red states that are going to be different than, than those happening in, in blue states. I will say this, though. Nationally speaking, right, we know that most Americans um, oppose book bans. We know that most Americans, for example, think that um, school teachers and librarians, for example, are doing, um, 
you know, are, are essentially using appropriate curriculum, right? And, and if, for example, when it comes to the teaching of race, we have a question at PRI that we asked uh, pretty routinely. So last fall, we found that two thirds of Americans believe public school teachers and librarians provide students with appropriate curricula and books that teach the good and bad of American history. Only about 29% believe that school teachers and librarians are indoctrinating students with inappropriate curriculum and books that wrongly portray America as a racist, for example. Of course, though, when you break that down by Republicans and Democrats, you have very different attitudes. And if you look at the sources of media that they're getting that information, you have very different attitudes. So watching Fox News all the time, you know, when Fox News and other uh, right-leaning media channels are essentially running stories nonstop about critical race theory and transgenderism and wokeism in public schools. That, of course, leads many um, Americans on the right to be alarmed by this. And so and they tend to live and reside in more conservative states. And so I think you are going to see in the short term these skirmishes continue. Um, and I do think that in the short term, at least in some red states, there's some success that's being had. Um, but I do wonder over the long term, if you look at the long game, um, how successful this will be, because, again, younger Americans are more racially, religiously diverse. Um, they're more likely to identify as LGBTQ. And many Americans, you know, even if they're not uh, Democrats or independent, some re and many Republicans have friends who are um, part of the LGBTQ movement. So it's, I think, the long-term prospects of trying to um, really have a repressive curriculum in public schools, I don't think it's going to be that successful in the long term. I do think the one area to watch, though, is whether or not red states are going to enhance funding for private religious schools. And I think part of what's going on here is that there's an attempt for, for example, and we're already seeing this in some states, to increase vouchers to private schools. And so some people say that part of this movement is orchestrated by the far right to, and you think about someone like a Betsy DeVos, who was the, the, the in the Trump administration as Secretary of Education, you know, she's long proposed um, having more public school funding go to vouchers so that parents can send their kids to more uh, religious schools here. I think you're going to see more of those sorts of attempts happening in the near future, at least in red states. I think in blue states that have very strong uh, unions, um, that's probably not going to happen. But I do think that one result of this is more attempts to have greater use of voucher programs, which many, I think, public school advocates would say actually takes money and resources away from public schools, which is not a good thing either. Sure. And, and just an, an, another note on, on parental rights. I mean, the way I see it, it parental rights just means right-wing parents ultimately deciding what's appropriate for everyone. And so for a good example, if we look to books, is that, you know, at least in school districts um, in Bucks County, a parent can um, limit access to certain books for their kids. But for them, that's not good enough. So what we're seeing is that they're challenging these books to get them removed or banned, which is a word they don't, you know, Moms for Liberty doesn't like to use, even though that's what they're doing, um, and ultimately just kind of get it removed for everyone. Um, so I think that's like a perfect example of like the hypocrisy behind this whole kind of, you know, parental rights movement. Well, and I think that's, you know, that's a good point. And, um, and I think that if you look at the language often used by the right, it's about indoctrination and they're trying to protect children, right? They're trying to save kids and, and that sort of thing. Um, but um, in reality, as you point out, um, you know, most parents don't agree with 
the ideology and the worldview that many of these conservative activists are are promoting. Um, yeah, so I think that's a good point. And then finally, are there any historical lessons to draw from or any advice that you can offer for parents fighting back against this right-wing push against public education in order to preserve the system that we have right now? I mean, I think that in terms of the advice for parents who oppose these initiatives, um, I think there's always the, the ability to sort of organize, to use the same tools that um, the political right is using, using social media to galvanize, to go to, to, to meetings um, for, for school boards, um, to kind of show support for librarians and, and public school teachers who want to introduce a range of ideas there. So, I mean, I think historically, these sorts of skirmishes in the public schools have sort of died down because there have been parents who oppose those attitudes who've been willing to organize for the other side of the, the political equation. Great. Thanks so much, Melissa, for joining the show. Everyone, I encourage you to check out the work that she and her staff are doing at Public Religion Research Institute, where she's a CEO. You can visit that website at www.prri.org. Thanks again, Melissa. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McGlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission.